Ah, the fine art of seduction. You know it can land you in hell, right? Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, the podcast that slow walks passage by passage through Dante's work comedy. We, in this podcast, are all the way up to the 18th canto of Inferno. We're in the dead... <laughs> maybe really truly dead, dead middle of it at line 67 through 99. We have come over the cliff with Gary and we are among the sins of fraud. We have seen the first sin of fraud, that is pimping out someone. And now we're about to see the second sin as a round of guys go the other way inside this pit. So let's catch it. Here comes the passage. I caught up with my escort without too many more steps. We got to a reef-like ridge that ran out from the bank. We climbed up this thing quite easily and turned to the right at its spine, thus leaving behind those who endlessly circled the pit. When we were at the point where the span yawns open to let the scourged ones pass below, my guide said, stop a bit and let the sight of these ill-born ones hold your attention. You haven't seen many of their faces yet since they've been going the same way we have. From the old bridge, we watched the rank and file that now came toward us from the other side, scourged in the same way by the horsewhips. My good master, without my having to ask a question, said to me, Look at that great one coming toward us. He doesn't seem to shed a tear despite the intense pain. He holds firm to such a regal aspect. That's Jason, whose courage and wits robbed the Colkins of the golden ram. He even stepped ashore on the island of Lemnos, where the bold, pitiless women put all their males to death. There, with all the gestures of love and with polished words, he deceived the all-too-young Hypsipyle, who had first worked her deception on all the other women. He left her pregnant and alone. His culpability condemns him to such torment, and thus, too, does Medea have her vendetta. Along with him go all those who practice deception like this. Let this suffice for you to know the first valley, and those munched in its maw. Just by my doing the Virgil voice, you know how long it's been since we've heard a peep out of Virgil. He's been quiet a good long time up until now, and he hasn't spoken this long for quite a while. But now suddenly, Virgil is front and center in the middle of the 18th Canto of Inferno, right here at the back end of the first evil pouch of the pouches that run down the sins of fraud. This passage breaks itself up into large chunks, not small chunks, but large chunks. So let's take them, big as they are. It starts up, I caught back up with my escort, which seems to bring us to the place we were in the last bit, in which the pilgrims seem to be walking backwards or taking backward steps to listen to Venedico speak when Venedico was walking toward him, so he's having to back up. Now Venedico's done, the demon had whipped him and said the demon's foul 
crude joke. And now our pilgrim runs back up to catch up with Virgil. They then climb this reef-like rocky ridge that runs out from the bank. They climb up this thing, it says quite easily, and turn to the right at its spine, the top of it, thus leaving behind those who endlessly circled the pit. In other words, those who were going our way, those who were going parallel with us, we've left those behind as we've come to the top of the span. And where we were at the point, it says, where the span yawns open to let the scourge ones pass below. So think of an arched bridge, and you're at the top of that arched bridge, and you're looking down. It's curious Dante is avoiding some obvious words to describe this. There are words in the Florentine to describe this, and he's walking around it to make the point of its spininess and rockiness. I want to talk about that in a second. That's when Virgil says, stop and let the sight of those ill Bormans hold your attention. You haven't seen many of their faces yet since they've been going the same way we have. That's the first chunk. But let's just stop a minute and talk about this rocky ridge that Dante and Virgil climb up on. And then they get up on its spine and go over it like an arched bridge. As I said, there are words in the Florentine that are easy to use for this. But Dante, the poet, seems to be shying away from them. Why? Well, here's one supposition, one perhaps answer to that question. We seem to be very concerned here with the geography of hell, the rockiness, the reef-like ridges, the spininess of it all. It all seems to come forward here, and it has been coming forward all along in this canto. If you go back to the opening episode on Canto 18, you're going to encounter again lots of reef-like and rock-like structures. Why here? This is a section in which the bones of hell are visible. We're seeing kind of the uh, rocky escarpments and spiny bits that make up hell besides just the pockets themselves. There is a thematic device running here, and that is in the eighth circle of hell, the bones of the poem are going to become more evident. We're going to see actually uh, hyper self-conscious poetic structure start to develop. And the very bones of poetry itself are going to start being exposed by the use of proems, by the use of very deliberate poetic allusions, by discussions of what poetry can get you and how poetry can get you damned. There are all kinds of self-conscious skeletal remains here amongst the evil pouches, the Malabolgia, and I think that ties to the landscape itself. After all, what do we have here in the first stitch but a perfect structural pairing? You know as your Virgilian guide, <laughs> as, as I am, you know that this Virgilian guide loves structure more than anything and sees the poem as architecture almost more than anything. And this is a perfect pairing. Here are two sets of guys, and I really keep saying guys, and I really kind of mean it, guys. Two sets of guys going in opposite directions, being whipped around this evil pouch. And it's just a perfect pairing. We have the pimps on one side, and here on this side, we have the seducers. 
than most specifically Jason. And so we see these guys that have seduced women to their own ruin. You'll note that the first set of guys, the pimps, engage in a metamorphosis. That is, they turn women into money. The second set of guys, the ones going in the opposite direction, don't engage in a metamorphosis. Instead, they engage in a verbal or linguistic deception, that is, seduction. This kind of talking your way into, in fact, it comes up in the passage of polished words, talking your way into the good graces of a woman and then leaving her in a bad state. Metamorphosis, linguistic deception. Metamorphosis, linguistic deception is going to become part of the bones of the eighth circle of hell. It's part of the structure of the very circle itself, and it's being established here really early on. And I think that's part of what the poet is up to by constantly pointing us to the bones of the Malibolge or the evil pouches themselves. And this will stop. This geographic fascination with the pouches won't stop all the way down. So they get up to the top of it. Virgil says, stop a bit. This time, Virgil stops the pilgrim. Notice last time the pilgrim stopped Virgil and backed up. This time, Virgil stops the pilgrim. See the, see the parallels? My gosh, I, you know I love this stuff because it's so structural. You know how much this just warms the cockles of my heart that I can see the structure working here in the last bit with the guys going in one direction. Dante stopped Virgil. Now Virgil stops Dante, except Virgil is a bit more self-conscious about it. I mean, he literally says, stop and let the sight of those ill-born ones hold your attention. Uh, you haven't seen many of their faces since they've been going the same way we have. And so now we're going to turn and face them in the next part of the passage. From the old bridge, and now we use a term that's, <laughs> that we've been lacking, <laughs> bridge. From the old bridge, we watched the rank and file that now came toward us from the other side, scourged in the same way by the whips. And if you've listened to this podcast and the other episodes, you know this question of who's on which side of the ditch has come up multiple times. I'm not sure it matters, as I said, because what I'm sure matters is the linguistic and literary structuring of the passage. But they're going to see the guys coming the other way and my good master without my having to ask a question. So unprompted, Virgil offers this. Virgil was mostly silent before. Now Virgil seems to be talking a lot and doesn't even need a question as he often needs from the pilgrim to point out Jason. And what Virgil says is rather amazing. He says, look at that great one coming toward us. That phrase just jumps out. Let me give it to you in the Florentine. Guarda quel grande che viene. You can hear all those hard g, k, g sounds at the beginning of the phrase. You can feel how crafted that phrase is. It's gorgeous. It's arresting. And in fact, it should arrest you because what is Virgil doing? Calling a figure in hell a great one. And Virgil goes on to say he doesn't seem to shed a tear despite the intense pain. What is going on here? Well, let's first of all say we've already seen a few figures like this. For example, Ferenata, that is the most 
depressing and classic example of a figure who seems to hold the, the torments of hell uh, in disdain. But we've actually seen others. Brunetto, while he doesn't want to be flamed on by the flaming snow, still doesn't seem all that concerned about it. I mean, he does talk for a good long time. This time, it seems to be foregrounded. This one who is so great, Jason, you know, of the Argonauts, that he holds the whole pain of hell in contempt. Is this sequence a comment on Virgil? Because, as I've told you, there is a back and forth between Dante and Virgil that gets set up here. And this back and forth is going to carry out. Dante starts this pouch. Virgil ends it. And Virgil, in fact, is going to end this whole canto, essentially. It's going to carry out. The next canto, 19, is going to be very Dantean. The next canto after that, 20, is going to become very, very Virgilian. And we're going to alternate between the two of them. And this is setting it out. So this does seem to be about Virgil as we go down the pouches. This does seem to be on the Virgil side of the argument. But is this a comment that Virgil somehow finds this heroic? Or is it that Virgil's hero, Aeneas, ruined Dido? And that Dido climbed up on her funeral pyre to kill herself in the Aeneid, and thus Virgil is attracted to this kind of seducer. It is, after all, a little bit of his own hero Aeneas. I know that's blasphemous to say inside of comedy where Aeneas is so held up and Virgil is so held up, but you have to wonder why this is put in Virgil's mouth. Why is he given such an arresting line? Guarda che il grande che venne. Furthermore, what is it doing here in the middle of all of this horse-whipping terror that is going on in the first pouch. I bring all of this up so that we can lead in to the question of Jason. Virgil says he holds firm to such a regal aspect. Is Virgil seduced by this kind of character? That's Jason whose courage and wits robbed the Colchians of the golden ram. This is our first big reference to Jason, and you should know that there are more on the way, three big references to Jason in Paradiso. And over the course of comedy, the notion of who Jason is will change dramatically. And I don't want to get into the forward motion of what happens in comedy. So let's just look at Jason right now. Regal, disdaining the pains of hell, but at the same time, a really contemptible guy whose courage and wits robbed the Colgans of the Golden Ram, the Golden Fleece, that eventually becomes the constellation Aries, that, that robs them of the Golden Fleece. And how did he do that? Oh my gosh, he left a trail of women behind him. He stepped ashore, it says, Virgil says, on the island of Lemnos, where the bold, pitiless women put all their males to death. What is he talking about here? Well, Venus had made all the women of Lemnos repugnant or repellent or revolting to their husbands because the women of Lemnos refused to sacrifice to Venus. And so, rather than sacrifice to Venus, the women of Lemnos just killed off all their husbands. So they defied the gods. And I want to just highlight that for a second. They defied the gods in the same way 
that Jason is defying the torments of hell here. It's that same, one may be a classical God, and one may be the quote-unquote real, true Christian God, but both of them are defying the will of the gods. So there is a kind of linking between the two. He steps ashore there, there with all of that gestures of love. And Dante the Poet uses a word, the signs. He says, with all the signs and with polished words. And I think the signs means the kind of gestural uh, signaling that goes on with love. He seduces Hypsipyle. Who is Hypsipyle? She's the daughter of Thoas, and Thoas was the king of Lemnos. In fact, Hypsipyle saves her father. When the women of Lemnos decide to put the men to death, Hypsipyle stows her father away and hides him so that he is not put to death. Jason in both Ovid and Statius, Jason seduces Hypsipyle and he gets her pregnant and she ends up having two children and he works his deception on her. But you'll notice it says he deceived the all too young Hypsipyle who had first worked her deception on all the other women. So there's a chain of deceptions. Deception leads to deception. How does that deception happen? Uh, That is an incredibly curious question. The text says, there with all the gestures of love and with polished words, parole ornate, that very phrase is going to throw us back to the second canto of Inferno. Remember back in the second canto of Inferno when Beatrice comes down to Virgil and she says, you know, you got to go find my Dante and you've got to save him. And she convinces Virgil to go save Dante. And she says, set out. And with all your mm-hmm, polished words, there she says it, with all your polished words and whatever else is needed for his safety, go to his aid that I may be consoled. The same words are used there to describe Jason's speech here. Why is that? Is it that Virgil and Jason are being linked as both seductive in some way? Don't think so. Is it that the notion of polished speech has changed? Maybe. Maybe when the poem starts out, polished words are highly valued. And by the time we're reaching this point in comedy and this point in Inferno, they're not. Because remember Venedico? We just saw him down here in the other side of this pouch. Remember Venedico says to our pilgrim, it's your plain speech that forces me to talk? We have plain speech put against now the damned Jason's polished words. So maybe there's been a change. Maybe our poet is starting to realize that the simpler, less classically formal and polished diction is actually the right diction to carry this poem forward. Maybe that we could trace as a change in the poetic craft. Rather than trying to make this big, giant comparison between Virgil's polished words and Jason's polished words, or try to say that Virgil and Jason are linked in some way, 
Maybe we could see it. More important to see the plain speech reference with Venedico just a moment ago versus now polished words and what had been formerly very uh, uh, lauded polished words is now not such a good thing. It's a part of seduction. Let's again talk about Jason's seductions. There he is with Hypsipyle, the daughter of Thoas, and, well, gosh, he is about to abandon her and go on. It says, Virgil says, he left her pregnant and alone. His culpability condemns him to such torment, and thus, too, does Medea have her vendetta. Jason seduces Medea. He gets her pregnant. He convinces her to steal the golden fleece with him, to show him how to do it, to help him do it. They do it together. She then has her two children, and then he abandons her. Medea goes into a kind of rage fugue state and kills her children as well as Jason's new wife. Here, the important thing to know is that this story has been collapsed down into one line, Medea, and a big word has been used, vendetta. We've already seen this word used in Inferno, and it's going to become more and more important. Because Dante is on the run. Many people have a vendetta against him, and he has every right to have a vendetta against many other people. In fact, this cycling of violence is intrinsic to the notion of a hellish landscape. This is the first time in a while vendetta has been used. It's going to get picked up again and again until we finally discover that there is a way out of vendetta. But it's important that in the first evil pouch, the word vendetta occurs. The basic way to get your political revenge on your enemies by slitting their throats and in the case of Medea, the throats of your own children. Let's finish out the passage. Along with him go all of those who practice deception like this. And notice how many times it's a word. It's the same word in the Florentine. Deception has been used. He deceived the all too young Hypsipyle. She had worked her deception on the other women by hiding her father. And along with him go all those who practice deception. Notice this word is just repeated and repeated so that we understand that this is what we're talking about. We're not necessarily talking about the arts of love, the way Francesca is. Instead, we are talking about sheer linguistic languaged deception and the way that deception defrauds the world itself. Let this suffice, Virgil says, for you to know the first valley and those munched in its maw and were back to an image of eating as we will always return to an image of eating. That is the second bit of sinners, the seducers in this trench. But I have another question for you, and that's about the circularity. How is this evil pouch different from the sin of avarice? Remember the avaricious and the prodigal and rolling their rocks around and around that circle and bashing their rocks into each other? And why do you save and why do you throw out? Remember that whole bit and the notion of the circularity of 
avarice. And here we have a similar circle. That is two people going, two groups of people going in opposite directions, except here they're walking in opposite directions, being whipped, in walking inside this pouch. Why, why, how are these two ideas linked? They're clearly alike in some way, two sets of sinners in one group. Let me just put it this way. I think there is a growing notion of the circularity of Inferno. I mean, I think the poet knows that the rings of hell are rings, but he hasn't truly explored that as an idea. Here's what I mean. When we get to the neutrals, remember the neutrals running around that flag on the plane? Remember that whole thing? It's not really clear that that's a whole circle. I mean, it must be the big, giant, top circle of all of this. There are some critics of Dante who claim that the neutrals aren't in a circle. They're just in a big, open plane that comes through the gate of hell, and we're not yet into the ring structure of hell. Maybe. But I can tell you this, limbo isn't very circular. I mean, there's that castle with the green grass and the flowing clean water and the great poets. That castle can't be circular. It doesn't extend all the way around Limbo. And Limbo must be a giant circle to be way up there near the top. It's not yet explored that these are actual circular territories. When you get to the Lustful with Francesca, I mean, they climb up onto that pinnacle our first notion that there may be ruins in hell. They climb up onto that pinnacle, but we don't get the idea that the lustful are necessarily being blown round and round and round and round this circle. We get the idea that they're being blown about. And perhaps we could say, oh, they're being blown round the circle? Maybe. It still feels like they're floating out on the wind and they come to us. When we get to the gluttonous, well, I mean, there's Cerberus, but, you know, Cerberus is only standing in one place. Cerberus doesn't take up the entire circle of the gluttonous. And while we can start to get the notion of circularity, I think the poet is beginning to explore it. And when we hit the avaricious, that's when the poet says, ah, right, these things are circles. I should take advantage of the giant circularity of this. And he does. He starts to kind of see it as a landscape of circles. And by the time we get down here to the pouches, the circles become extremely important. And it becomes important that whatever is happening in these is happening again and again and again because the circularity will add to the notion of fraud as as in its repeatability or its constant iteration or that it can constantly come back on itself and do itself all over again or that it is like a snake that eats its own tail and ultimately being a fraudster is to consume yourself. But that is all long ahead. By this point in the poem, we can definitely say our poet has established the circularity of hell and is exploring it fully with his poetry and maybe also has turned away from any worries about polished speech and turned toward plain speech, which can tell the tales of the damned and the redeemed better than any kind of classical formal language. And to see all that, we got to keep going down. And we are only in the middle of the 18th canto. We got another ring, another pouch, another set of fraudsters to go in still canto 18. In other words, we got a canto with two groups of sinners, or three if you count the two groups in the first ditch. 
So subscribe, rate, come back. We've got more to go, and it's about to get a whole lot grosser. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.